Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, a spinning gas halo discovered around the Milky Way, the Square Kilometre Array Project reaches another milestone, and farewell to Rosetta's Philae Lander. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have been surprised to discover that a halo of hot gas surrounding the Milky Way galaxy is spinning in the same direction and at a comparable speed to the galaxy's main disk. The discovery reported in the Astrophysical Journal was unexpected, with scientists having hypothesised that the disk of the Milky Way spins while this enormous reservoir of hot gas remains stationary. One of the study's authors, Edmund Hodges-Kluke from the University of Michigan, says this flies in the face of expectations, with a hot gas reservoir rotating almost as fast as the galaxy's disk, which contains stars, planets and gas. The discovery sheds new light on how the galaxy and its stars were formed. The galaxy's hot gas halo is several times larger than the Milky Way's disk and is composed of ionised plasma. Astronomers were able to study the disk using archival data from the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton Earth Orbiting Space Telescope. Because motion produces a Doppler shift in the wavelength of light, the authors were able to measure shifts around the sky using spectral lines from very hot oxygen. The Doppler shift measurements showed that the galaxy's halo spins at about 650,000 kilometres per hour, while the galaxy's disk is spinning around 870,000 kilometres per hour. The rotation of the hot halo tells astronomers that this hot atmosphere is the original source for a lot of the matter in the disk. Scientists have long puzzled over why almost all galaxies, including our Milky Way, seem to lack most of the matter that they would otherwise expect to find. Now, this is not to be confused with the 80% of matter in the universe known as dark matter, a mysterious substance that so far can only be detected by its gravitational influence on normal matter and light. However, most of the remaining 20% of so-called normal or baryonic matter is missing from galaxy disks. More recently, some of this missing normal matter has been discovered in gas halos around galaxies. Learning more about the direction and speed of this spinning halo will help astronomers learn both how the material got there in the first place and also the rate at which this material is expected to settle back into the galaxy into the future thereby providing a glimpse of structural changes we can expect to see in the Milky Way in the future. Scientists have completed another key milestone in their efforts to build what will be the world's largest radio telescope, the SKA, or Square Kilometre Array. Researchers have now successfully completed astronomical verification of a critical subsystem for the giant telescope known as the Frequency Synchronization System. 
This new system will allow the Square Kilometre Array to collect and combine extremely sensitive data, even though its individual antennas may be separated by hundreds of kilometres. The Square Kilometre Array is a large multi-radio telescope project being developed in both Australia and South Africa. The array consists of hundreds of dish and dipole antennas spread across both continents. It'll have a total collecting area of over a square kilometre, hence the name, and operate over a wide range of frequencies. Australia's share of the SKA project includes 36 12-metre diameter dishes for the Australia Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, or ASCAP, and the Murchison Wide Field Array, which consists of some 2,048 dual polarisation dipole antennas. Eventually, the Australian contribution to the SKA will include over 100,000 dipole antennas, each about 2 metres in height, covering the low-frequency end of the radio spectrum. And this could eventually be expanded up to a million antennas. The South African contribution will include the telescope's high and medium-frequency antennas. This includes the CAT-7 telescope array, which was a testbed for the 64-dish Meerkat telescope array, which recently achieved first light and which itself will eventually be integrated into the SKA-1 MIT array, which will feature another 130 dishes across the Great Karoo. Signals from all these antenna will be combined by supercomputers to produce previously unobtainable information about the universe. Its sheer size will make the SKA 50 times more sensitive than the best existing radio telescopes, and it will have survey speed some 10,000 times faster than any other radio telescope. The SKA is designed to be synchronised using ultra-stable frequency signals that are transmitted on optical fibre from a centrally located atomic clock to each of the telescope's hundreds of individual antennas. The problem is, as mechanical stresses and thermal changes act on the optical fibre, it'll degrade the stability of transmitted signals. Therefore, the SKA requires an active frequency synchronisation system in order to maintain coherence across the entire expanse of the array. This new system will continuously measure changes in the fibre link, applying corrections in real time and reducing fluctuations to no more than one part in ten trillion over a time space of just one second. A clock relying on a signal of this stability would take three million years to gain or lose a second. The new frequency synchronisation system technology being developed for the SKA was tested on the CSIRO's Australia Telescope Compact Array at Narrabri in northern New South Wales. The compact array was selected for testing because it's equipped with two independent but identical receivers. Scientists connected the SKA synchronisation system to one set of receivers, leaving the other set unaltered. This setup allowed scientists to simultaneously observe a reference galaxy using both the standard compact array reference system and the new SKA synchronisation system. As a result, it allowed researchers to compare the same astronomical data between the two systems to see if there's any differences between the new system and the established technology. Subtracting the two observations resulted in a direct astronomical measurement of the stability performance of the new SKA synchronisation system. The experiment used an 8 GHz reference frequency transmitted over 80 kilometres of optical fibre in order to simulate typical SKA link lengths. Astronomical observations were conducted at 5 GHz and 25 GHz in order to simulate the range of SKA mid-receiver bands. 
Dr. Sasha Sidiri from the University of Western Australia says the new frequency synchronisation system performed between 10 and 100 times better than the requirements specified for the square kilometre array. Last month, we had the opportunity to take that equipment, which we've been developing in the laboratory setting uh, for the last couple of years, and take it to one of Australia's current premier radio interferometry telescopes, uh, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, which is operated by the CSIRO, and test our SK frequency synchronization system on that telescope. So you can test what you can do with what's already there to see how they compare with each other. Yeah, that, that's right. So the uh, the compact array has a, a unique simultaneous receiver system. So we were able to deploy the prototype square kilometer array frequency synchronization system on one uh, receiver by transmitting an, an optical signal on an optical, uh, not 80 kilometers of installed optical fiber and return it back to the central side of the compact array and drive one set of receivers while at the same time leaving the compact array system which just operates over a couple of kilometers in place and so we're now able to do that direct comparison. And how do they compare? It's a, it was a very interesting uh, interesting experiment. So what we found was that the SK synchronization system was able to perform about a factor of 10 or so below the requirements for the SK um, over those distances. So we're, uh, we're able to show that when we apply the system to the square kilometer array, we'll have no problems meeting the stability of, of the system. And um, But the this unique test allowed us to really drill down into the various aspects and systems and little components that are contributing uh, to the noise so that we can really identify what are the limiting factors and, and really hone down on them and perhaps improve the system uh, and, the, and the tests even more in the future. Explain to us exactly what the problem is in getting different antennas to sync to work as one single antenna in simple terms. Uh, that's right, of course. Um, so with, um, with modern radio astronomy, instead of the conventional picture of having a single radio telescope, a single dish, like the one your listeners are probably familiar with, uh, like at Parks, the big dish, we can build multiple individual antennas and combine their signals together using a, a powerful computer and therefore get the collecting area of all those dishes together, but also by spreading those dishes apart, we get a, a higher resolution, so sharper images. But the trick to being able to do that is that each of the antennas have to be synchronized. So you can imagine having a very accurate clock on every antenna. So when the signals from the sky come in, they're effectively time-stamped against this frequency reference. And if that frequency reference is just a little bit out or wobbles around in time, then that computing process can't happen and the images that you would normally form and would look perfectly sharp and just get completely washed out. So it's a, a critical part of the way modern radio astronomy telescopes work. You just got to make sure it's all working at the same time in exactly the same way. Yes, uh, and that's right. So um, these uh, older telescopes, uh, the ones where this uh, technique was pioneered 20, 30, 40 years ago, they're all relatively compact. And imagine having one central clock and you could send out your signals on a cable or on a fiber and the telescope can operate. But now that we get into this new regime of telescopes like the square kilometer array that are very extended where the telescopes are separated by hundreds of kilometers, that sort of simple just sending the signal on a cable is no longer good enough. The fiber lengths are now so long that all these environmental perturbations, temperature changes, trucks driving along uh, can basically corrode that signal, disturb the signal to the point where those beautiful images would wash out. And so we need to develop these new systems to actively sense those changes in the fiber 
and actively correct for them to ensure that all those telescopes, all the individual antennas, they synchronize at all times. And although this is very important for astronomy, obviously, there are going to be downstream benefits as well. I mean, it was thanks to astronomy we have GPS. Uh, so there are all sorts of follow-on developments which, which are likely to occur from something like this. Some of them, we don't even know what they are yet. But in years to come, these will become everyday events for us that are only available because of the sort of research you and your team are doing. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a very exciting field to be in. And we can see that the technologies that have come come out of this scientific community in the last 10, 15 years are now starting to be applied to sort of more commercial sphere and, and industries. So one example is the autonomous vehicle driving, for instance, that's obviously very dependent on being aware of its surroundings. So this sort of technology is very similar to that, as well as one of the other fields I'm interested in is the space industry. So knowing exactly where the satellites are with respect to each other and where they are with respect to the Earth is incredibly important for, like you say, global navigation and just general being able to use those satellites at their maximum capacity. The SKA project really is a game changer, isn't it? We've had to work new ways of storing and analysing data because there's so much of it that's going to be coming in from these telescope arrays. The entire project is quite mind-boggling. It is. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge effort by a large, very large number of scientists and engineers and researchers, uh, several hundred all across the world. And it's a really a global project and we're trying to push the boundaries of technology, you know, not just in, in my field, but as you mentioned in, in computing, um, signal processing, mathematical algorithms, data storage, telecommunications and, and other electronic areas. And uh, I guess the hope is that uh, all the boffins, you know, learn some wonderful new things about the universe, but always uh, these uh, wonderful technological spin-offs that come from endeavours uh, like this. Well, we've just had the recent announcement that Meerkat, one of the South African precursors to the SKA, that's just received its first light and apparently the data it's getting is stunning. Uh, it is. I believe they've uncovered uh, over a thousand new galaxies. So it's a wonderful instrument over in, in South Africa and uh, they're making great progress. So, yeah, I'm very fortunate to have close links with our South African colleagues and they're a really a great bunch of people and we really enjoy working very closely with them. Yeah, a lot of Australians don't realise this is truly an international effort. It's not just dishes in Australia and South Africa, but you've got Jodrell Bank in the UK, which is sort of coordinating the whole thing. Yes, that's right. So the Jodrell Bank Telescope is operated by the University of Manchester who are the same group that are heading up the synchronisation and timing consortium that I work for. So they're really in charge of all this work and, and putting it all together and then producing a, a final product for the SK. So not just the synchronisation side, but all the networking and data transmission and the, all the, the complex data movements and putting it all in one place and making sure everything is where it needs to be. That's Dr Sasha Shildiri from the University of Western Australia. European Space Agency mission managers have formally switched off the Rosetta spacecraft's Electrical Support System Processor Unit, or ESS, which provides communication links between the orbiter and its tiny fillet lander. Switching off the ESS is part of the preparations for Rosetta's end of mission. Rosetta is slated to complete its mission on September the 30th, performing a controlled descent onto the surface of Comet 67P Sheremov-Gerasimenko. The pioneering probe made history in August 2014, becoming the first spacecraft to enter orbit around a comet. Three months later, Rosetta made history again by releasing the fillet lander on a seven-hour controlled descent to the comet's surface, becoming the first spacecraft to land on a comet. 
However, because the 5-kilometre-wide comet has extremely low gravity, Philae was equipped with push rockets and harpoons needed to anchor itself to the comet's surface as it landed. The problem is both systems failed to deploy. This resulted in Philae bouncing off the surface several times and eventually coming to rest, we think on its side, in a shaded ditch where it receives little if any sunlight to power its solar panels. After swinging around the sun, Comet 67P Sheremov-Gerasimenko is now heading back towards Jupiter on its relentless seven-Earth-year orbit through the inner solar system. As it heads outbound, there's less and less light available from the sun to power Rosetta's solar arrays, which are needed to provide energy for the spacecraft's instruments and onboard systems. Rosetta is now some 520 kilometres from the sun, and mission managers in Darmstadt, Germany, say the spacecraft is starting to face significant power losses of about 4 watts per day. In order to continue scientific operations for another two months until Rosetta's mission comes to an end, engineers are starting to cut power to non-essential payload components. No signal has been received by Rosetta from Philae since July the 9th last year. And earlier this year, mission managers decided the lander should now be considered to be in a state of internal hibernation. However, in spite of this, the Electrical Support System Processor Unit was kept on until now, in the unlikely but still possible event that Philae may regain enough power to recontact the spacecraft. Although Rosetta has reached altitudes well below 10 kilometres above the surface of Comet 67P, no fresh signals have been received from the lander. The closer Rosetta gets to the comet, the more influence 67P's non-uniform gravity will have, requiring mission managers to have more and more control on the trajectory and therefore more manoeuvres. A number of dedicated manoeuvres in the closing days of the mission will conclude with one final trajectory change at a distance of about 20 kilometres, about 12 hours before final impact. That manoeuvre will put the spacecraft on its final descent. Mission managers want to use the final days of the mission to try and spot the final resting place of Philae, and so finally solve the mystery of exactly how the lander ended up. The region to be targeted for Rosetta's impact is still under discussion. Spacecraft operators and scientists are examining various trade-offs, with several different trajectories now being examined. Scientists think they may have finally worked out the genetic makeup of the last common ancestor of all living things on Earth. A report in the journal Nature Microbiology claims our earliest common ancestor probably made its living around superheated deep-sea hydrothermal vents about 4 billion years ago. This great, 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 great ancestor of all living things, you can put a few more greats in there if you want, has been named LUCA, which stands for Last Universal Common Ancestor. Life on Earth is currently divided into two domains and six kingdoms. Plants, animals, fungus and protists all belong to the domain known as eukaryotes, which have cells with specialised structures such as distinct nuclei. The other two kingdoms are eubacteria and archaeobacteria. These are single-celled organisms without a distinct nucleus. To find LUCA, the authors sifted through 6.1 million protein-coding genes in DNA sequences, looking for common genes in both two groups of bacteria and two groups of archaea, in order to determine which genes are likely to have been around in the primordial soup of ancient Earth. Because genes mutate at predictable rates over time, the authors were able to identify 355 essential genes out of some 286,514 protein clusters. 
The study, led by William Martin from Germany's Heinrich Hein University in Dusseldorf, found the gene suggested Luca was an extremophile anaerobe capable of surviving in extreme conditions without oxygen. Luca probably metabolizes a diet of carbon dioxide, hydrogen, metals such as iron. Surprisingly, it seems Luca contained only a small number of proteins needed to produce amino acids and nucleotides, which are critical key building blocks for life as we know it. And finally for now, the annual Delta Acorids meteor shower is at its peak, with the best viewing about now because it coincides with a new moon providing darker skies. There are two branches for the Delta Acorids, southern and northern. The meteor shower is best observed from the southern hemisphere with about 15 to 20 meteors per hour. The southern Delta Acorids are visible from mid-July through to mid-August each year, with the event appearing to radiate out of the constellation Aquarius near one of the constellation's brightest stars, Delta Aquarii. In contrast, the northern Delta Aquarids are a weaker shower, peaking later in mid-August with an average peak rate of about 10 meteors per hour. The Delta Aquarids meteor shower has been observed since at least the 1870s. But it's still somewhat of a mystery as to what causes the Delta Aquarids. Some astronomers suspect that the event happens as the Earth passes through a stream of debris left behind by periodic comet 96P Macholtz. However, others insist they're formed by debris trailing from the breakup of the Marsden and Crank sun-grazing comets. The Delta Aquarids are best viewed in pre-dawn hours, and like all meteor showers, they're best seen away from the glow of city lights. That's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audioboom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, this month exploring the mystery of fast radio bursts. 